don't get that noise that says recording in progress and it throws me off. But it says it's recording. All right. All right. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of There's Danger Here. I'm Leilani. I'm Sam. And we are here to do a case for uh, in Louisiana. And this is actually going to be the first of a set of three serial killers that were all active in the area, sort of around the same time. Um, he's in the middle. He's not the one who originally starts like this spree that happens in Louisiana, but he's one of the three that we're going to talk about. So it's going to be labeled as a mini series. They're all individual people. But it's all around the same time. So when I originally got into this, I thought that he had probably one of the worst body counts I saw before I realized that they were attributing, like they were trying to figure out who these were attributed to. Oh, they were like that close in time frame. Oh, they were at the same time. It was, I mean, they're all active in the Louisiana area at the same time. Um, a couple of them, it looked like they were all like in the same area too. There's differences in how they do everything, but. Yeah, they were all active at the same time. That would have been really confusing to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the city definitely felt the effects of it. Yeah. And I think I talk about it a little bit towards the end. All right. So today we're going to talk about Derek, Derek Todd Lee, who was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. Derek was one of four in a tumultuous home. Shortly after his birth, Derek's father left after being convicted of attempted murder of a different ex-wife and spent time in a mental institution. So right off the bat, we have some mental health uh, within the family. Florence then remarried to Coleman Barrow, and there are wildly varying reports on Coleman. Some um, things say that he was a terrible father, while the book I read called I've Been Watching You, which has been renamed in like subsequent series or like not series of the book but later editions it was renamed but i this is the copy i found um by susan and a special prosecutor tony clayton with sue israel states that coleman was a good fatherly figure um, getting Derek a horse when he was younger raising the family in the church and then supporting them as a cement truck driver However, like I said, most other articles I found report that Coleman was physically abusive while his mother either watched or at least knew about the abuse. During his school years, Derek was in special education program, and most reports say that his IQ was around 65, although a few sources report that he could have been closer to 70 to 75, and the average person's IQ is between 85 and 115. So, Did they ever do like IQ tests on you in school? Not that I remember, but I think they did. I, did they? Yeah. I feel like I hear about that all the time with serial killers, like mm -hmm. how they've done their IQ was this or this. But mm -hmm. it's like, who's doing that testing? So I remember having like our whole class having to go through testing. Now they have like state testing and I don't think it necessarily is their IQ more as the curriculum. Yeah. But I remember being young and they were like, well, yeah, you're advanced for your age. You're not. And I don't know if it was IQ or just state related testing. My guess is if they're below average and they're falling behind, they're trying to find the reason that maybe right. if it's not behavior, if they're not learning, why aren't they learning? And so then they kind of go into IQ testing to find out where they're at. That makes more sense. Yeah. He lived close by to his cousins and would play with them often. One of his cousins, Kenny Ray Lee, said that he had heard about Derek peeping into the windows of homes in the areas looking at girls starting at about nine years old. 
At 11, he was caught peeping at girls through the windows in the neighborhood officially. And at the same time, he began torturing dogs and cats. So yet another person who's torturing animals. Yeah. I, that's like, obviously, it's one of the things you are taught that you need to look out for in a kid. But it is just so telling. I feel like if my kid starts to torture animals... There's got to be some serious intervention, and I need to watch her for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, we need some counseling. Let's figure out what's happening. Let's sort this out. Yet, Kenny says that in school, he didn't fight often. Derek didn't fight often. Instead, he would walk away unless someone got into his face and didn't give him much of an option. Still, three days after he turned 13, he was arrested for burglary when he broke into a business called The Sweet Shop. For this, he ended up pleading guilty of simply simple burglary, and as a result, was put on probation in order to pay restitution. He broke into the sweet shop. <clears throat> he did. That he Thank did. you. I mean, except for the fact that he's breaking into it. I, I hope he was like trying to steal like candies. I didn't even look into what it was. I assume it's candy, but it could have been something completely different. It's like, pretty what? Yeah. yeah. It won't be. I'm sure it's the only adorable thing in this story. <laughs> it's and it's still funny. not adorable. But yeah. All right. At 16, he was charged with attempted second degree murder after he pulled a knife out during a fight with another teenager. Eventually, however, those charges were dropped, though he didn't seem to slow down. And and in February of 1986, at age 17, Derek was arrested for being a peeping Tom, but he still wasn't incarcerated at this time. Sorry, I hit my elbow. I don't know if you heard that. Okay. Don't mind me over here. That funny bone. Even though the reports of Alfred and Florence Lee at this time stated that Derek had been peeping in their windows for weeks. At this time, he also dropped out of school in which he would have been in his 11th grade year. Instead, he went to work in the town of Zachary as a pipe fitter, helping for Kellogg Brown and Root Construction. He had been peeping for weeks? Like, did they not call the cops? The First time they caught it, they just let him do it for a few weeks. So some reports say that they're family and some reports say that they're close friends. So I'm sure at first they were like, knock it off. They knew who he was. They knew who he was. And they're like, they finally got sick of it. And after, you know, they're like, knock it off, going to the parents, knock it off. Nothing's happening. They're like, all right, well, now we're calling the cops because you've been doing this for literal weeks. Yeah. Unacceptable. Everything we've tried to tell you to stop is not working. Yeah, not working. In 1988, Derek married Jacqueline Sims after she graduated high school. Derek originally met her when he was 13, and they had been friends since meeting. They had their first child approximately nine months later, Derek Toddley Jr. Shortly after he, again, I don't tend to bring up children of serial killers as they're also victims. However, at the end of this case, I'm actually going to bring up something to do with Derek Jr. Is there something to note about him in the news? Um, Just remember, that's not really my norm. I try not to talk about family, family. So I might say their names, but I'm not going to give you their history unless there's anything pertinent. But anyway, around the time Derek Jr. was born, Derek lost his job with Kellogg Brown and Root Construction. In September, Derek was found in a person's home yet again. Instead of breaking and entering, Derek received probation for the charge of unauthorized entry of an inhabited home. In February 1990, Jackie reports that one night Derek twisted her arm and threw her out of the house. She filed a restraining order following the occurrence. 
In May, Derek and Jackie's father, Henry, got into a fight and was he was arrested for disturbing the peace. Then in November of 1992, Doris Lee was born, and in the same month, Jackie, Jackie filed an absent parent form against Derek in which she said he walked out of her and her children's life. In early 1993, Jackie filed more charges for criminal, oh my God, criminal neglect of the family. Goodness, that was a mouthful. Derek returned home after this and found work with another construction company and sometimes drove cement trucks in order to support his family. After this, Jackie sort of took him back, even though oh, she had filed all these things. And there's history of it. Like, they have domestic violence issues yeah. that litter their whole, like, time together. And then later, we'll talk about it later, but, like, he has affairs and stuff. And she pretty much knows about it and is like, you know what? As long as you support me, like, I'm going to take care of the kids. You do you. And that's how she it ends up. Low self-esteem, that woman. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah, it's, uh, it it's can be, very sad. It can be hard to get out of it, especially when you have children. Oh, it's definitely. By okay. no means am I saying she should have just, you know, Bounced. played her Beyonce and walked out the door. But like, she, like, that's a pretty massive pattern, it sounds like, going on. Yeah. He did reportedly take his children out to the zoo and to parks, but every once in a while he wouldn't come home for the night. In the evenings, he liked to go out to bars, and unfortunately, this is, like I said, allowed him to begin affairs. The most prevalent one that is referred to in news articles and the book I previously mentioned uh, was a woman named Cassandra. When Jackie asked about this, she admitted, quote, quote, I just quit caring and went on with my life, end quote. So like I said, she really was just like, you know what? I'm going to take care of my kids. You take care of me. We're still sort of together. Like you have a bed to come home to when you come home. I need your money. Yeah, to support the family. Yeah, basically that's what that is. That's what it feels like, yeah. On August 17th, 1992, Derek was laid off from Cecil Graves' automobile dealership. In his rage and anger, Derek began prowling, landing him in the Oak Shadows subdivision. Then, on August 24th, 1992, Tracy Bryan, who had stayed the week with her boyfriend before her next semester in college started, was... Um, decided to call and check on her mom, Connie Warner. In the morning, she called multiple times with no answer, and finding this strange, she called her grandfather, who then headed over to the um, her mom's house with her. Tracy reports finding kitchen chairs out of place, her mother's glasses on the floor by the master bedroom, and the mattress in her room, like halfway kind of sitting off the box spring. After finding this, they immediately called the police. When police arrived and determined there was likely a struggle as they found blood stains by the washer and dryer that had been pushed back near the carport, as well as blood, vomit, and bodily fluids in the backseat of her car. Crime scene. It is. Like, I, I understand, but like, that's like just the mattresses halfway off mm-hmm. the bed, the washing machine is all like mm-hmm. out of place, like, yeah. or like blood's behind it. I don't know that. I understand in it, front of it, but I was pushed back. That's the worst description yeah. ever of it when I was trying to describe it. But that is like another level of chaos. Sorry for interrupting. No, it's you're wild good. That it's it's, good. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like in most of the reports that her daughter kind of went all the way through the home. Luckily, I wouldn't know what I would have done if I saw the all the blood everywhere. But they had come in and she saw like all this stuff that's out of place, and she's like, "That's." Like my mom's not going to leave the house like that. She wasn't doing right. anything that would have 
made this happen. So they call the police and the police find everything. And it sounds like the washer and dryer are kind of, you know how in like the smaller Southern homes, it's a carport. And then as you walk in, it's that set of washer and dryer that are right there before you actually get into like the main. That's how it sounded like it was laid out to me. And so to me, it sounds like he like is dragging her through the house. She put up a fight right at the washer and dryer. She probably clung to them, honestly. And so he likely hit her there which pushed those washer and dryers like back before getting her out of the house. Yeah the, bulk, yeah. the bulk of forensics is found in the carport area, which luckily I guess is covered. So we don't lose evidence if it rained again. I don't know if it rained, but it would be, but on the field at the yeah. same time, there was also hair found on the trunk. Her house keys were missing altogether, but there were no signs of forced entry. As the forensics team was working the scene, Unfortunately, Hurricane Andrew hit the area and emergency services were then diverted to deal with the aftermath of this. So this area wasn't hit like with the initial um, force of Andrew, but it's more inland, but they still had like the high winds and the rain and they had to help with everything that happened from that. Therefore, it wasn't until September 2nd that her body was located and it was by a truck driver, badly decomposed in a drainage ditch by Capitol Lake which degraded any evidence there may have been on her. I mean, it's sort of shocking that they found it at all. Mm-hmm. I feel like a hurricane down south is no joke, Yeah. whether you're in the eye of it or not. Like, yeah. And again, this was more inland, so winds had started dying down. I think they were still up at like 70 miles an hour, but they're not. It's more that like hot rain, like that yeah. humid rain that just would like probably pound down on you. Mm-hmm. For days, potentially. Yeah. So her autopsy reveals she had severe injuries from blunt force trauma to the head, which resulted in a skull fracture. Connie was a 41-year-old accountant and a single mom to Tracy, and her birthday would have been less than a week away. I don't know why that always makes it more sad when they're so close to a special day or a special event. Like, oh, they were probably so excited for it. It's just a reminder that they're, like, never going to get those again. Yeah. Right? Like, there's so many special events that have just been taken. Mm-hmm. November 1992, Derek came back to Zachary in Fenwood subdivision and broke into a house he seemed to expect to be vacant. However, the homeowner came home at this time, causing Derek to take off. Stealing a bicycle, he found in order to hastily return to his own vehicle that he had parked sort of down the road, a maroon Buick Electra that he again, had parked far away and was using to prowl in. Luckily, the homeowner called the police and officers were close by and managed to catch him just like kind of as he reached his vehicle. Some reports say that he actually turned it on. Some say he didn't. So he might have almost gotten away. He was arrested for the break-in, but made bail two days later. So many missed opportunities here. You're going to see it all throughout this case. Yeah. All throughout this case. And there's also where some detectives will think that He's a suspect and some won't, and we're going to find out why, kind of about way through I'll talk about why he gets away with so much. Five months later, in April 1993, a teenage couple was parked in a cemetery doing teenager things. We can all, we all know what's happening. (laughs) They report it was raining and they didn't even hear anybody come up to their vehicle when the door just swung open and Derek swung an axe into the boy. Like no words, no knocking, no nothing ripped a door open, hit the boy with the axe. 
a girl ended up being hit on her legs and they're underage. So they are not named. So they just are going to be called right. the boy and the girl. Right. Derek continued swinging, hitting the boy in the arms as he was attempting to protect the girl. Luckily, however, an officer was patrolling in the area and saw the headlights on and decided to approach it. And at this time, Derek sees the cop and just takes off. The teenager shut the door and locked it. Not really sure what's happening because they just got hit with this surprise attack. Mm -hmm. So Officer Eubanks didn't see the commotion but had again saw like the dome light in the car was on and was like, what is this in a cemetery? He So he got out of his vehicle and went over to them with a flashlight in hand approaching the car. And you know how when, I don't know, when it's nighttime and you get flashed, you can't see the person. You only see the flashlight. Yeah. So the kids in the side are screaming. The officer said that he could see that they are covered in blood. And he realized that something was happening. So he basically flipped the flashlight around so that they could see that he was a cop, which was pretty smart on his. Oh I mean, yeah. And this prompted the girl to unlock her door. Like she was like, "All right, all right, we can, we can let you in." It would be so scary. That is like a true horror movie, right? It is. I feel like that. I've seen that in a horror movie. Just a random attack, yeah. And I would have a hard time even like believing the police officer was a good guy. Yeah, that would be a struggle because I'm sure whole body's in shock and you're not processing correctly, but. Hopefully my brain would just be like, oh, yeah, that that's a cop. He's here to help us. But I also would be slightly paranoid that, like, I have no idea who just put an axe to my body. Yeah. It could have been him. Like, well, we'll see. She, The girl gives a description. She sees him. Okay. Which is great for her, I guess. Um, Officer Eubanks called for paramedics and then searched the area. But, again, it was raining, so no evidence is found. All her footprints were already being washed away. At the time, there were no suspects, and it wasn't until six years later that Derek was positively identified by the girl. So she gave, it sounds like she did give like a description, um, but then as more news articles come up, she sees him on the news and was like, that's the dude, Honda Brissett. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's a statute of limitations on attempted murder, which I had no idea about this. And at the time he was finally identified, it had just passed. I found in Louisiana, negligent homicide, the limit for the statute of limitations is four to six years and manslaughter is six. So I'm guessing there is a similar for attempted murder. Seemed long enough to me. Right? Like, right. I understand a statute of limitations. There's a lot of things that can have like changed over like a course of years in your mind and your brain, but that doesn't seem... Like six years. That's not long enough. It's not long enough. Because again, so she gave a description of him, but she couldn't, I mean, without a lineup or without, so they didn't find him until six years later. And at that point, she's like, yeah, that was him. Right. Why should that be statute of limitations when it's not her fault? Like she brought it forward. It's not like she didn't report right. the crime until six years yeah, later. It, totally. It like, just, it surprised me, but so I had to put it in because I was like, no way. That's not real life. That is shocking to me. Mm -hmm. In June of 1993, Jackie reported to police that a Derek, that a Derek, you know, a Derek, that Derek was beating and choking her again. In July, so the next month, Derek was sentenced to four years of hard labor after being convicted, again, of simple burglary. He did two years in the East Baton Rouge Parish 
until he received parole in July of 1995. Two months later, he was arrested again for peeping Tom charges and sentenced to 120 days. So he's just back-to-back charges. He just, like, misses his free meals and his, like, bed, I feel like. Like, why, like, how on earth does he not care about going back to jail? Like, I don't know, and he keeps getting lucky. So, like, in this case, the sentence is suspended, and he received two years unsupervised probation. Oh, how? This sounds like post-pandemic type of law enforcement right here. Like, the court system was dealing with COVID on a secret level or something. (laughs) I feel like that's what's happening now, is they're just letting people go. But yeah, that was 1995. 1993. Oh, no. Yeah. 1995. Sorry. I was reading the first The first charge was 1993. So a whole three weeks after this, he was arrested again after stealing from the Salvation Army bins. So he was basically riding around. I think it was with cousins or friends. And he saw these um, bins and he went and just unloaded them basically into the car and was like, mm, they're mine now. And a patrolling officer said that he just sat and watched him do it. He was literally watching him the entire time. And when he had completed it, he went over and arrested him. Burglary and theft charges were later dropped to misdemeanors and no further time was given for these. So he's still not getting anything. They're like, hey, don't do that. Like, that's it. No sentence. No nothing. Just don't do that. And he's got already got a record. He's got a pretty long record. It's not... They're not super long, but it's growing and they're not, it's not like the same crime over and over. He's clearly escalated. He's broken into houses. You know, Jackie's reporting that he's beating here. There's all these things and he's just getting slaps on the wrist over and over and over. There needs to be like, this is the part where you intervene and you send him to jail for a year. Mm -hmm. Make him think about what he's doing. Like, or, you know, that suspended sentence should maybe not be suspended. Right. In February 1997, Sergeant Enos was patrolling Oak Shadows Division after multiple reports were received for a prowler. As he drove, he spotted Derek. Sergeant Enos lived in the area and knew that he was not one of the residents, so he asked Derek what he was doing. Derek said that his truck broke down and he was going to see his girlfriend, but he didn't know her name or where she lived. Sergeant Enos asked for his license, and Derek said it was still in his truck. So the two went back to his brown Chevrolet at the time, which was coincidentally left near the cemetery. After his, after his ID was run, it came back without warrants. So without proof that Derek was the prowler, he had to let him go. Derek jumped into his truck that he had just claimed was broken down, started it, and left. Oh, man. Like You knew that police officer was like, oh. Oh, I would have followed him and pulled him over for something. <laughs> I would have, like, found him. I would have got him on something. Yeah, that would have been, it would have just been frustrating to watch him walk away, knowing that clearly he lied because he lied because he said the truck is broken down. He doesn't belong in the area. He right. can't give you a solid al- alibi, and you have a prowler, and you're like, could somebody not have seen his face? Like, that yeah. would have made things so much easier. That same month, Jackie filed the complaint that Derek was fighting with her because she had been talking on the phone. So just talking on the phone, and he got mad and decided to fight her. Oh, I'm rolling my eyes right now. (laughs) Domineering. 
Yeah. On July 31st, 1997, Detective David McDavid, which is an epic name, received, yes, it rolls off the tongue, received the call for another peeping Tom in the Oak Shadow subdivision again. As he drove through the neighborhood, another call came through from Willow Creek Apartments about a black male standing in a kiddie pool staring into one of the apartment windows in this area. They're all right. It's all right there. By the time the detectives got to the apartment, the man was gone, and so detectives kept searching the neighborhood. Eventually, he spotted Derek running down the road and flashed him with his lights, but Derek ignored him and continued toward his truck, turning off instead towards the woods after being realized like he's closely being followed. The detectives called in canines and additional officers, and Derek practically ran straight into one of the additional officers that came out to help when he was trying to get away from the dogs. After matching his footprint uh, to, a f- to one of the prints found outside a window, he was booked on six counts of criminal trespassing, two counts of peeping Tom, and resisting an officer. He was bailed out within days of this. Oh my God. Like Jackie, stop it. Stop bailing him out. Let him sit. It's money on hand. He's like expensive husband. Yeah. Like, she stayed with him, I said initially, for the money, but he is costing her so much money. Like, oh my God. On April 17th, 1980, 1998, I was going to say 88, Derek was laid off from Louisiana Ready Mix. Reports also state that he was fighting with Cassandra. Again, this is the longtime affair woman. Right. More than normal. Two days later, on April 19th, 1998, in Zachary, Louisiana, Randy Mabrur, a five-year-old son, Michael, was found wandering in the streets in the early morning. Again, reports vary on the age of Randy's son, though it is most commonly reported as five. I have seen three as well. But either way, Mm. just this little toddler. The boy was found by a neighbor who saw him and immediately called the police saying um so again in the book that i read the neighbor her name was kathy and she kind of set everything in motion so she according to this book specifically it's reported that michael kind of came and saw her son who was outside and was like can he play and so she was like well is it all right with your mom and michael was like i can't find her mm-hmm. which is heartbreaking so when michael said that Kathy went over to the house and looked for, like, with him, taking him there and looked for her. Seeing blood, she immediately ran back to her house to get her husband, and he was the one to call the police. As they entered Randy's home to complete a welfare check, they were confronted with blood spatter on the walls, drag marks of blood down a hallway, and in the carpet, like, her contacts were visible, causing police to believe that Randy was fighting the killer and was beaten in the head the force causing her contacts basically to come out which how violent of attack is that to have your contacts come out that's it's crazy violent and also incredible that they found them like you would assume it would be like a bloody mess and they would be sort of just you would definitely glance over them but it sounds like they saw them Mm -hmm. so quickly i don't know i feel like the blood would make it easier to see them than if they were just in the carpet yeah Either way, it's an impressive find. But Randy was still nowhere to be found. Even more blood was found in the kitchen, along with pieces of her hair, suspected to be Randy's. Anyway, in the carport 
pooled blood was found along with semen on a trash can liner. Her car was still in the carport. However, it was typically parked to the, like, in, let me say that the other way. I wanted to say it backwards. I was like, that's not right. That's not right. You have to see my hand motions. Nobody else can see them. So you're like, I completely get what you're saying. This is like, I don't don't get it. What's happening with your hand? So it's typically was parked to the left. So closest to the door. Um, And she always kept it in the center. Oh, okay. So it was like, as if somebody, she was waiting for somebody, you know, how you would move it over to give them room is kind of what it sounds like. Randy was a 28-year-old single mom, having been divorced for two years. Her keys were also missing, along with a set of five-pound dumbbells. Immediately, Randy's ex-husband was interviewed as a suspect. However, he had a solid alibi as he was working out of town and had recently had a bunion surgery, which would have caused him limited movement. He would not have been able to fight anybody. How did they not, like, again, I feel like that's pretty incredible detective work, like, a set of five pound dumbbells like unless she had it like perfectly organized and clean yeah. they were missing i guess but that's what i picture in my head how you know how they have like the little weight racks and it has you know the ones three fives and tens right, right. which a lot of women tend to use like the lighter weights or at least you now some women yeah like i have a set of the lightweights to go with my bigger plates but i have them so if it was in like the standing rack they're missing and if they're not there, you're like, all right, are another, they anywhere here? Another reason to keep a clean house, because if someone came into my house trying to figure out, like, what happened to me, they'd be like, oh, my God, Sam's weights are missing. And then someone would be like, oh, no, there's I found one in the guest room and one in her daughter's room. And they'd be like, oh, okay. You're like, like one's like, actually in the bathroom. Yeah. We don't know what happened here. Like, no, that's normal. What's she she does this. <laughs> yeah, Sam just lives here. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, it did say in some reports that there was one of the detectives that was on this case for years was trying to pin it on the ex-husband and just thought it was him and thought it was him. And then later down the road, when they sort of get a better suspect, he kind of kicks himself for focusing too heavily on the ex-husband, who, again, solid alibi. Brian Doobie was also interviewed after some fresh flowers were found in the trash. Turns out they had been given to her by Brian after, I think, their first date. Again, new relationship, and it seemed like it was just starting out and going well. But Brian was out of town for a construction job. There's some reports that say they had actually been in communication, and she's like, you know, I can't wait till you get back in a couple days, and they were planning their next date, and it sounded super cute. So again. Brian. Yeah. Unfortunately, Randy's body was never found. Yeah, there's a couple of these. Without anyone to compare it to, the DNA waited five years to be used to solve for Randy's, well, murder. Um, And that's the DNA that was found on the trash can liner. If you remember Detective David that I spoke about a few minutes ago, he got involved in Randy's case as well. He stated, quote, I knew that he was involved in Randy's murder and Connie's murder in the incident in the cemetery wholeheartedly, I knew. So he knew that there's one person doing all of this stuff, and they just couldn't pin it on one. Um, since he was suspicious, however, that the detectives, along with two other officers, Kling and Banks, drove over to Derek's house. So he actually thought it was Derek. 
um, based on like all the other prowling incidents in the area. Uh, uh, you would kick yourself for that. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. They also did a search of his house with Derek's consent, so without a search warrant, because they just showed up and were like, hey, can we come in? And he said yes. But when they got to the closet, he asked them to leave. Unfortunately, at this time, there was not enough evidence to continue to pursue Derek. Then in December of 1998, then in December of 1998, Jackie again called police and reported that Derek hit her again. Cassandra again, that's Derek's girlfriend, got pregnant. And in July 1999, she had a boy whom he named Diedrich Toddley. So remember, his son with Jackie is Derek Toddley. Um, just spell it the same and just pronounce it. No, I guess I heard that and I was like, are you kidding me right now? No, original. You know, it's that narcissistic personality. Yeah. Still, he managed to continue his tirade. And on June 21st, 1999, Colette Walker, a 36-year-old, was walking from her apartment to her car when Derek walked up to her asking for a ride. When she said no, he asked her out. And again, she's like, no, dude. She managed to slip into her car and take off. Shaken by the incident, she was kind of on high alert. However, just two days later, as she was walking to her apartment, Derek showed up like right behind her and just followed her into her own apartment. Oh, that, like, I wouldn't have any patience for that. No, no. And he's a solid built man. So that must have been terrifying. Yeah. Derek spoke with her for a few minutes, again, asking her out, and she kept saying no. At one point, at one point, she he asked her, like, what, do you do, not just date black men? And she's like, well, that's not it. You know, right. like, I you just followed me into <laughs> my own home and, like, yeah. forced me to be your, like. So, uh, in the end. He gave her his number before finally leaving. Colette was uncomfortable, obviously, by this and on high alert. Still, it doesn't say that she went to the cops at this point, which I feel like I would have. But maybe she was just like, well, he walked in like he didn't break in. What am I going to say? But I don't think this man's followed me into my home. Unacceptable. I would have been on the phone so quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Although I actually have had like had similar situations now that I think about it in New York. And you didn't call the police, did you? I didn't See? call the police. I just sort of was like, what the hell was that guy doing? Yeah. What was he doing? What did he think was okay? That was not okay. Yeah. So the next night, Colette's daughter wanted to get something from the car. So let's, Colette, like, watched her from the door. And she reports that as her daughter came back towards the apartment, she saw Derek move from behind a tree and realized that he had been watching her. A neighbor. Yeah. yeah. At that point, I'd call it. Yeah. A neighbor ran into Colette a few days later and told her she saw a man trying to look into her windows. With this, Colette finally called the police and spoke to Assistant Police Chief Archer Lee. Derek was arrested and in December of 1999 took a plea deal, being sentenced to six months in West, um, I think it's Feliciana Parish Prison. There's a lot of parishes. The sentence ended up being, again, suspended. And he was back on supervised probation for two years. Suspended. Suspended again. That is the constant. 
yeah, a constant in the story. Just suspended. The lucky society and citizens no. who live around him. No. Mm-mm. For there's a lot of these that you'll see. He gets something suspended, and then shortly after commits a murder. Yeah. If he was in, guess what? That person might still be alive. In February of 2000, Cassandra called the police reporting that Derek and her were fighting and he started beating her when they were at the bar. Police arrived and Derek attempted to flee in his car, almost running over a responding officer. He was subsequently arrested for assault and battery, aggravated flight, simple criminal damage to property, and attempted first-degree murder for the police officer that he hit, as well as violating his probation. The attempted murder charge was eventually dropped and Derek was sentenced to another four years of hard labor. Not hard enough. No. (laughs) Mm -mm. And unfortunately, he only spent one year in prison for all of this, being released on February 18th of 2001. Upon his release, he was required to wear a monitoring device through June. In April, Derek missed his curfew. I'm giving you the look. This is going to get ridiculous. I apologize. And again, found guilty of aggravated flight of an officer. By May, he had disconnected his monitor twice, and on the 23rd of the month was found guilty of violating parole. Well, he should have immediately returned to prison for this to complete the three years left on his suspended sentence. He was verbally remanded instead. They told him that he was bound and not to do it again. See, it's funny. Like, there's, on one hand, I am so terrified of the courts, like, only had to interact with them one time in my life and I just assumed I was gonna be so screwed like the whole time and then I hear stories like this or I'll like hear about this and like how they're just dropping all of the domestic disputes or whatever and I am just like okay people get away with a lot of stuff they do they do often to the detriment of others yeah on September 11th 2001 Derek's parole officer, Goodfellow, received a call from the sheriff's office stating that Derek was around Colette's apartment looking for her. Again, this is the Colette that pressed the charges for all these things that he did, the one that we just talked about. And this is another violation of parole. He's not allowed near her. You just caught a case for this specifically. You are not authorized to be anywhere near her. When the Goodfellow uh, confronted him, he simply denied it. So they didn't do anything about it. Oh, wow. Like she's saying he's here and he's like, nah, I wasn't there. And they're like, all right. Okay. Sounds legit. We believe you. Like, we believe you, the guy who literally just keeps getting arrested. Let me take your word for it. Yeah. You sound truthful today. Yeah. Okay. Is this guy like Southern royalty? Like, what is going on? No, no, no. Just seems to get away with everything. In September of 2001, Gina Green was found raped and strangled in her home near Louisiana State University, which is in Baton Rouge. Gina was a 39-year-old nurse who picked her career after she too suffered a kidney disorder in her childhood that required numerous medical procedures. As she grew, she decided she wanted to help people in the way that she was helped while she was hospitalized. By 2001, she was the manager of HCS Infusion Network, so she's doing it. Mm-hmm. On the 23rd, Gina's alarm system sounded at 3.47 a.m., and after checking around her house, she notified the security company that it was a false alarm. On the 24th, when she didn't show up for work, one of her employees and friend 
Greg LeBlanc was worried. He called repeatedly, getting no answer. So around lunch, like during his break, he drove to her house to find out what was happening. He knocked, and after getting no answer, he tried the door, which was uh, also locked. So he went to the back door and tried it, but it too was locked. Greg entered, calling out to um, Gina. I think she, he like got in either through like a window or something that he found cracked. It was like, I have to find out what's happening. So he like opens and he's like, Gina, like, where are you? And he eventually found her lying on the bed. So he backed out of the house and called 911 immediately. Detective Coulter found Gina in her bed, covered up with a sheet. As he processed the scene, he found her shirt in the kitchen. Her skirt, pantyhose, and panties were ripped off in the living room. And her keys are missing. We haven't gotten any. As the fight moved down the hall, her earrings and bracelet were torn off. He like she like all these women sounds like actually like really fought him. Mm-hmm. I think she did more than he had anticipated yeah. as well. A feces smear was found on the master bedroom carpet, likely where she was killed before being placed in the bed. Autopsy showed bruising to the face and neck as a result of manual strangulation. She had also been raped and sodomized. Gina's phone and credit cards were missing. Police contacted contacted her wireless provider and the company tracked her phone where it was found outside of the ready portion meat company along with a credit card. Police then arrived and found her checkbook, other credit cards, and a towel from her house all tossed in the same area. Mm-hmm. Well, and he just took it and then tossed it right. down the road. Like, why? Why? This time he did not take her keys. I swear, because the house was locked. Like, yeah, but if it's not deadbolt, you can always lock yeah. the door and shut it on the way out. Man, that security, like, it goes to show, folks. Don't ever dismiss your security, like your alarm. Yeah. If it goes off, don't let the security company think that it's fake. Just let the cops come. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? You mm-hmm. know, they can look through your house with you. Yeah. Two days later, Jackie called the police again, filing another domestic violence incident. Derek spent October in West Feliciana, again, I hope I'm saying that right, prison, probably not, awaiting court while um, with the parole board. So this time he was like, she was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not bailing you out. Like you get to stay for this one. She didn't have any money left. (laughs) Well, this was a violence charge against her. I don't think I'd be the one to bail him out. That's true. Well, Goodfellow requested that he be held for yet another parole violation. The parole board apparently thought another verbal reprimand was enough. And after that, again, just let him go. Derek, yeah. So, see, I told you, just suspended sentence, verbal reprimand. It, like, that, like, punched my gut a little bit. Like, it took, like, I don't, it just is too much it's too much that he's not getting arrested and held on Mm -hmm. these anything certainly he has a rap sheet now like it's not just like a small he's interacted a few times this guy is becoming a real problem well and he's proving that he can't be out and continue to do the right thing like he keeps violating his parole this is what jail is for Mm -hmm. on see. Derek was then fired from Exxon Plant and picked up 
and he went and picked up his final check from them on January 14, 2002. That same day, Gerilyn DeSoto was found deceased in her home. Gerilyn had a tumultuous relationship with her husband. She told many of them, like many of her friends, of his abusive behavior and wrote about it in her journal. Yet she didn't want to divorce him. On the 14th, so the day that this happened, she was in a good mood, however. She had a job interview and was working towards becoming an occupational therapist. She was at home when she had sent some emails and then logged off the internet after sending everything out at approximately 11.50 a.m. It is believed that she was attacked shortly after. Uh, Derek is suspected of asking for the phone as she was kind of hit in the face with it so hard that it fractured her skull. Oh my gosh. Like a mobile, her mobile phone? Well, so we're not there where mobile phones are super, super popular. So it's like a house phone. So it's the big, thicker ones. Uh, Um... And there's another one. He does it again, and we'll talk about it. But, yeah, he, like, um, it seems like his MO for getting in, because they don't see a lot of the, like, breaking and entering, is that he knocks on the door and he has to use the phone. And so they're like, all right, and hand it over, and then he just hits him with it. Gerilyn likely went for a shotgun, which was located in her bedroom, but it was unloaded. Evidence from the crime showed that the barrel had left scrape marks on the ceiling as they fought for it. Gerilyn then turned to run out the back door when Derek pulled out a knife and stabbed her in the back twice, then hit her in the left breast. He continued stabbing her seven times as she fought back. This is all evidenced by DNA, uh, defensive wounds, and she also like scratched the crap out of him, and it was DNA evidence under her fingernails. His knife pierced her jugular vein through the thorax. Derek also left boot prints behind in her blood, and it was noted that he used his boots to continue to stomp her as she was already on the ground. Good God. Mm-hmm. I like, this man is angry. Mm-hmm. So this is right after he got fired, and in some of the reports, the where she was at, she was in like a trailer park, and it was on the route to go pick up the fire, or to come back from the final check, because I think he actually got the check. And as he's coming back, he just stops off there and attacks her. But had he not been fired, he wouldn't have been in the area. Or had he been, oh, I don't know, in jail like he should have been. Exactly. He wouldn't have been in the area. Again, this woman, I was like, not that there's any, I can't say it breaks my heart more, but they are such fighters, like Mm -hmm. all of them. Like, I'm proud of them. I was just going to say, it's sad to say, but I'm proud that they... Yeah. They fought him. And the fact that, I mean, she just kept fighting and kept fighting. And the DNA ends up coming back many years later. But that's how they're able to connect Derek to this crime. Right. So when her husband, Darren, arrived home, he found his wife. Initially, he thought that she had committed suicide. However, when he bent over and picked her up, he found that her neck was basically flayed open. He ran out of the house and had a neighbor call for police. Police believed. Darren originally to be the key suspect and again for years thought that he was a suspect even after his very solid alibi um, as he was at work and work was like 40 I think they said it was like 45 minutes away and all of his co-workers were like no we saw him throughout the whole day his lunch is 30 minutes he wouldn't have had time to go there attack her come back without us noticing Um, but in her journals she did talk about 
wanting to commit suicide, which is why I think he thought of that first and kind of their tumultuous relationship. He did admit that he had hit her on a few occasions. So I think that's why he stayed as the suspect for so long. Man, that journal too. <laughs> the journal did it. Yeah. The DNA evidence that was under Gerilyn's fingernails wouldn't be helpful for more than two years before it was finally linked to Derek. Mm-hmm. In May of 2002, Derek once again found himself out of work. He was laid off of Harmony Corporation on May 23rd. So if you'll see, a lot of these are following after he's getting laid off. Where was he laid off? called Harmony Corporation. Oh, I said E-Harmony Corporation. No. It's like, what? Yeah. Online dating company? No, it's just hard to say off of. Sorry. Harmony Corporation. On May 23rd, 2020, or 20, 2002, Christine Moore, a 23-year-old LSU student, had just finished another semester. She went out that day to go for a jog down River Road. She parked her car at Far Park, Horse Activity Center, where it was found two days later. It wasn't until June 16th that she was found. And deacons at Ebenezer Baptist Church were gathered outside of a small clearing by the side of kind of their church, which they used to talk after services had concluded. They had noticed that for the past few weeks, more and more dogs were like coming into that area and were chewing on something. And they assumed that it was a large animal that had just laid down to, you know, to die. They started to grow more and more concerned and decided to call the police to go over there and look at it. By this time, the body was completely skeletal and the FACES laboratory at LSU, LSU was enlisted to help in identification. The lab also determined the cause of death was likely a skull fracture due to blunt force trauma. And Louisiana is like no joke for like dead bodies decomposing. Like it was already just skeletal from the animals. Yeah, it had been, I mean, it had been weeks. I'm sure it was warm and the animals had come in and for weeks had been taking off the meat essentially from her bones. Um, Not pleasant. It's so sad. Oh, it'd be so sad that like I have to consider that as a family member. Mm -hmm. And I will say Christine was never positively, positively identified as a victim of Derek's. However, I added it um, because her case bears a lot of similarities to a surviving victim of his in which he did something pretty much the same. And while I haven't really touched on Derek's victim profile, I will now because it is relevant to why she wasn't officially linked. Derek's victims were typically slender young white women with brunette hair. Christy? just going to ask what race they were just yeah. out of curiosity, like, Mm-hmm. Who is he angry at? Who's he targeting? Yeah. Christine was described as a fair-skinned black woman. I will also say that at this time, the Baton Rouge area had three active serial killers, like I spoke about in the beginning, and I haven't yet looked into the other two and their victim profile, so I don't know if one of them would have fit better. Maybe that's where they thought it was. So there is a possibility that she could have been attacked by one of them, or or even just a one-off killer. That is so unfortunate that they were all like functioning in the same area at the same time mm-hmm. yeah it seems like there are similarities in the blunt force trauma though again Derek does tend to stick to victims at their home yeah 
But if you remember the case of the two teenagers, like I had talked about before, that occurred in a graveyard. And the girl did positively identify Derek. So we know for sure it was him. Yeah, I mean, as much as you have your profile, I feel like, and I'm no FBI analyst here, but I feel like there's still probably likely outliers here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she's not the only um, dark-skinned woman that gets attacked in this situation. So, yes, his profile's typically white women, but those aren't the only. And I think there was one other, like, factor, and it had to do, they said that everybody had high cheekbones, and I'm like, they had cute faces, so. I'm in the clear. <laughs> that's quite the, that's an interesting detail. Uh, I know. I, in all of them, they're like, has prominent high cheekbones. I was like, oh, okay. On May 31st, 2002, Charlotte Murray Pace uh, was a 22-year-old that had just graduated as the youngest person with a master's from LSU. Originally from Atlanta, Charlotte decided to stay in Baton Rouge with her friend, Rebecca, before starting a new job that she was just offered in the fall as she was completing school. Rebecca and her were still unpacking their items into the new place the day that Derek attacked her. Charlotte had gotten off work and stopped at a car wash, leaving at about 12.24 p.m. When she got home and made herself a sandwich and started to eat it, once again, it's believed that Derek knocked on the door and asked to use the phone as there's no forced entry and she was hit in the head. With the phone. So again, it's he's using this phone. In like broad daylight too. Like all of these are taking place during the day. Which is. Uh, there might be. A, Not all of them. Some here and there. Like the security alarm one. I think was probably more of the middle of the night. But mm-hmm. but the lady who was killed when her husband was at work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I like, think. So I think he was like more angry. So because if you see in like the case of Randy. Randy was in the middle of the night. Her son was sleeping. Cindy was likely taken in the middle of the night. So yeah. I think it was more of convenience when he's driving by if he sees him and is like, oh, they're alone. Versus stalking them at night. What a dick. Blood spattered onto the cradle of the phone. He then took out a flathead screwdriver and began stabbing her with this. The blood trail led from the living room into Rebecca's room. Charlotte fell on the floor of Rebecca's room as Derek continued to stab her. He stabbed her 83 times in her eyes, chest, arm, and arms as she attempted to shield herself and into her neck. Did he bring that screwdriver? Mm-hmm. That was his weapon of choice? That's what he, I mean, if it might have been in his truck and he just grabbed it. Because again, if she's more of convenience than one of the ones that was more stalked uh-huh. and he got out because he was mad about something. A lot of people have screwdrivers and stuff like, like, in their truck. Semen was found on her left buttock. Rebecca came home at 2 p.m. and entered through the back door. She called out for Charlotte, but got no answer. As she got close to her room, she started seeing all the blood. When she reached her room, she found her roommate lying between the dresser and the bed with her legs spread open and her shirt pulled above her breast. In her blood was an imprint of a tennis shoe, size 10.5. Charlotte's phone, keys, and purse were missing. So he does take their keys this time. Yeah. Keys this time. Yep, he did. Um, you would have to move that house. She does. She can't. She couldn't handle being yeah, there. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> On July 9th, 2002, Diane Alexander changed her work schedule. Typically working in the mornings, this day she didn't have to go into St. Agnes Hospital until 3 p.m. 
choose the extra free time. What was that? Did you hear that? Yeah. It, did it change? I don't know. That's weird. What are you doing? I'm doing nothing. I swear. What is happening today? Turn on the canceller. Is that better? Radio sound. Telephone voice. Robot sound. Radio sound. Telephone voice. Robot sound. Radio sound. I think that's right. No. Yeah. Is no. that better? That sounds better. That sounds weird now, though, on my end. There. There. I feel like my name is super funny again. I know. Mine just did that, too. What just happened? That was the weirdest. What are you doing? The original model. So it should be there. God damn. What was that? But is that echoey? No. No. A little. Oh, yeah. Radio sound. Is that better? That's it does again. Why is this doing this to us today? Maybe I need to get a new one of these. Maybe that's what's fucking up. It just, it sounds weird. But it's like registering my voice. It is. It sounds weird though. What happened? Hmm. The original model. Right? So, that, yeah, that was, that's, no. That's right. That's right. What just, okay, that was weird. I forgot where I am. That was really good. <laughs> Dang it. Oh, all right. Um, she used the extra free time to run errands. When she came home, she set about making lunch for her son, Herman, a college student who would be back from class soon. Diane heard a knock at the door and answered to see Derek. Derek claimed he was supposed to be going to work for the Montgomery's and asked if she or her husband knew them. When she did not, he asked, a phone book, which he started flipping through when he gave it to when she gave it to him. Diane went to hand him the phone, and he again asked if either he, if she, or her husband knew the Montgomerys. And when she said her husband wasn't home, it was like a switch finally flipped, and that's when he attacked her. He pushed his way into the home and started strangling her. Derek cut a phone cord that led to the computer, using a section of it to wrap around Diane's neck. He straddled her shoulders and began to beat her in the head and eyes. Hearing Herman return home, however, Derek jumped off Diane and kicked her in the stomach before running out the back door. So when the son, Herman, entered, he like could hear his mother screaming for help and she was covered in blood. Herman said he saw a man leaving and took chase. Like He just reacted and was like, oh, I got to get him. Good on you, man. Yes, I know his mother's sitting there bleeding. Like, yeah, I guess. Priorities. So he saw the man get in a gold car and speed away, but Herman couldn't keep up and ended up losing him. While Herman was out trying to catch up to Derek, Diane managed to crawl to her room and get the phone and call 911. Yeah, okay. You should have. Yeah. I and guess her- now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Poor mom. Yeah. He also, she also called her husband. And when detectives arrived, Herman was able to tell them that it was a gold Mitsubishi Mirage with damage to the front of the headlights. Diane had to be airlifted to the hospital with a hairline fracture, multiple head lacerations, as well as other injuries. Still, she was able to give great detail of how the attack happened and what occurred. After detectives were told about the wire, Detective Inzarella returned and cut the phone cord on either end to be used as a reference sample if they ever found it. Later, she gave testimony on how he gained entry to her home in the murder trial of Charlotte Pace. At the same time that Diane was attacked, 
Baton Rouge police officers announced the murder of Gina Green and Charlotte Pace as linked through DNA evidence collected. See, it's doing it again. Mm-hmm. Damn. It did. Why is it doing that? I don't know. Karaoke mode. No, I don't want that. Shop the Mac Hopping mode. Anchor mode. The original model. Close the canceller. Is that better? That's, yeah. Why? Oh my god. I think I just have to get a new one. Maybe? Stop it. Like, is it like... No. There's no... It's not it's, stuff plugged into it, right? No. Yeah. I think it might just be because I have it like in the bag, so it's constantly getting tossed around. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Did it change again? It sounds like it. Because I sound more like bitey when I talk. Turn on the canceler. Is that... No? Yeah? No, that sounds better. No, no. No, it doesn't. Exactly. What is happening today? We're having a bad day. Yeah. Radio sound. I know. What is... Close the canceler. There. No? That still sounds... No. Is that any better? Worse? Better? Sounds different, but it sounds good. It sounds more muffled to me. Although, yeah. I know. I'm kind of irritated. I didn't do it. Is that better? What did I touch? I don't know. Okay, I'm leaving it. We'll see how fast we can. All right. Still, Derek continued prowling. On July 12, 2002, he found Pam Kinnamore. Pam owned an antique shop. She called Comforts and Joys, which is adorable. That is really cute. She called her husband, Byron, before leaving for work, and he told her that he'd be home late that that night as he was out at a casino having some fun. She arrived late to an empty home, accidentally leaving her keys in the back door. It sounds like she kind of had a habit of doing this, and Byron would usually just pull him out as he got home and shut and lock the door. That's a bad habit. It it, it, it was detrimental for her. She ran herself a bath and got in. Evidence suggests that she was surprised by Derek and she was hit and struggled with him as there was drops on the blood of the carpet in the bathroom and a stool was knocked over. Oh, she, she, she was in the bath? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he, like, opened the door, she saw him and immediately jumped out and was that like, what? That is, like, one of my worst nightmares. Mm-hmm. Derek placed her in his truck and drove down the road. At a red light, a woman spotted Pam but didn't know what was happening. Still, this woman tried to write down what she could remember of the license plate and called the police. Twenty minutes later, another call came in. A truck driver was passed by a white Chevrolet that he could see a naked female kind of slumped over in the cab. He attempted to speed up to see what was happening, but Derek took an exit toward Whiskey Bay. The driver relayed all of this information, but it doesn't sound like it was followed up on, which probably would have saved her life and i was gonna follow up on the naked like passed out woman in the car no by 11:30, byron came home and noticed the blood and stool and since pam's car was in the driveway byron immediately called police on the 16th of july pam's body was found nude by whiskey bay the exit that he took that the driver said he's getting right. off on he's this exit she was laying under Whiskey Bay Bridge, partially covered with leaves and brush, a piece of cord laying nearby. It was later matched to the one cut from Diane's house. Oh, he saved it? Yeah. Yeah. Derek cut her throat three times, and there were defensive injuries on her knees and thighs. The drops of blood in Pam's home 
were later used to positively identify the killer. So it sounds like she fought back with him too. Yeah. It's so shocking to me that it's taking so long to catch this guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's sloppy. Yeah. But they don't have him as a suspect, so there's nothing to compare it to. And in all of his other crimes, I'm sure they didn't take his DNA because that wasn't like a standard thing that they did back then. Yeah, but there's been like police that sort of have him as a suspect. I feel like. Yeah, but without evidence or without proof, you can't go get a warrant. You can't get evidence. We can't do illegal things to try and arrest people. Pam's mother, Lynn Mariano, became a champion for bringing attention to her daughter's murder. Lynn organized rallies on the steps of the Capitol building in Baton Rouge, inviting media and family members of other victims. Even before the DNA resulted, linking Pam as a victim of Derek's, Lynn knew. The rallies were held every third Sunday of each month. They handed out flyers and informed the public about the ongoing investigation. Years later, when asked about this, Lynn said, quote, I was determined. I had no fear in me of the serial killer. I went against the governor, the chief of police, the mayor. My daughter's killer would be found and punished. That's all I knew. It's what kept me going. End yeah. quote. I get that. Yeah. Lynn also offered her services to police, willing to man the hotline for tips. Lynn went to the governor at one point with other victims' family members, suggesting that the main investigator didn't have enough experience for what he was doing. She also suggested the police should be searching databases for anyone with histories of Peeping Tom, stalking, burglaries, or batteries. Oh, so like everything he does. Everything he would have popped up for. He would have been like the first person on the list. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like, feel like I know parents can get way in the way, but mm-hmm. at the same time, when you meet a mother like that, like you just gotta trust her. Yeah. Like you gotta be like, she's got, she's a bulldog man and she's got an instinct and she's got like something she's on to something Mm -hmm. we need to listen to this and i will say that um in her case in particular there was kind of a disservice done because the witnesses both identified the male in the truck to be a white man because Derek is a light-skinned black man yeah and it would be that would send the search in the wrong direction. And it does several times. Yeah. Um, he actually gets dismissed because he's, you know, the reports say black man, whereas witnesses are saying this is a white man. Right. And so they sketch out a white man. And we'll talk about it later. There's statistics for um, who does the most serial killing, I guess. It doesn't look good. It's white men. It is. It easily. But like, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. On July 24th, two detectives, David McDavid again. And Danny Mixon met with the Baton Rouge Police and Attorney General's Office along with the Iberville Parish Sheriff's Office and laid out what they believed they knew about the ser- who the serial killer was. They both believed that a man named Derek Todd Lee was a serial killer and backed it up with evidence, including linking Gina to Connie's mer- killer as Gina's phone was found in the vicinity that Connie was previously dumped. They reported off their investigation on Connie and Randy's murders and Derek's criminal record, but they were dismissed as Derek was black. And again, like I just said, the eyewitness reports said that they saw a white man, specifically the witnesses in Pam's case. I'm just like, like in this day and age, like, or not this day and age, but you just investigate him. Who cares? Who cares what his skin color is? Because it's 
the description could have been given at night. It could be like the sun could have been shining differently. Some like anything can be dependent on yeah the way someone perceives the situation. And people get things wrong all the time. All the why time. why are we just relying on? They're like, oh no, that's not what the two witnesses said. Right. So we're gonna ignore all of this hard work the detectives did, and the thought that they think that it's you know. Derek doing this for X, Y, and Z reasons. They have actual reasons. Maybe check it out. Yeah. They did, like, they did wonderful police work. Let's continue it. Right. Just collect it. Like, you have DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Serial killer in New York just got caught because he took a drink from his coffee, mm-hmm. threw it away, and then the police took the coffee cup out of the trash and tested his DNA. Yeah, so if it's in a public domain, you aren't um, under the privilege of privacy. Same thing as if you take your trash out and throw it on the curb. That curb is a public domain, so anybody can search it for evidence. They don't need a warrant. It's only when you're in, like, your private domicile that there's an expectation of privacy, and that's the only place that they have to, that's why they have to have a warrant, right? Or a business, same thing. But if it's anywhere in a public area, it's you're not expected to have the same privacy. So I'll, you'll hear it a lot where they'll follow people for that reason, yeah. which is amazing. Please work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On August 7, 2002, a homicide task force was officially formed with uh, members from the Baton Rouge Police Department, the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office, the Louisiana State Police, and the FBI later joined by multiple other agencies, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Marshal Service, and the U.S. Secret Service. Chief of Police Pat Inglid was placed in charge of the task force. In March 2003, Derek claimed his final victim, Carrie Lynn Yoder, a 26-year-old grad student. So at this time, the FBI was busy creating a profile of the killer. They determined that the serial killer was likely between 25 and 35, strong and probably around 150 to 170 pounds he would have an average or below income would not be very mobile he would that he would have no empathy the profile did not give the race of the person but due to the eyewitness eyewitness accounts the entire task force focused on white men dismissing anyone else immediately so in addition statistically speaking only 16 percent of known serial killers are black as a result more than 1,200 white men would be asked to submit DNA samples. Some of, and some of them were just driving white trucks and were pulled over and asked to submit the sample because one of the victims was in a white truck. It's such a shame. It's like you have this guy's name in your hand and people. <laughs> More than 27,000 tips were called in to include Diane, the survivor who was dismissed because she was black and reported a light-skinned black man attacking her. Like, the survivor. Yeah, because she was slightly different than the rest of the profile. But again... With, like, the profiling, I feel like you just, you really do, you just start narrowing in, and happens all the time, not even like on the scale of serial killers and FBI's, but like you just start to really like, you dis- yeah, you dismiss everyone. Mm-hmm. 
you narrow without seeing the broader picture, which can be detrimental. Extremely. Mm-hmm. You have a wit- eyewitness account of like someone actually interacted and you dismiss it. Mm-hmm. On September 4th, another tip was given by Colette, the woman who testified against Derek stalking her. The task force followed up on this tip, but upon seeing that he was a black man with a with the wrong kind of white truck, as compared to what was called in, he was dismissed as a possibility again. So two separate women have called this in. Both have named Derek Todd Lee, and two detectives brought a whole case, and the whole task force dismissed all of them. I guess so. I would need to know, like, was there any other name that they received like that many times? You know, because maybe yeah. there's another creepo out in the community that like. Well, 27,000 tips were called in. And, again, there's three active serial killers in the area at this time. Yeah. It's tough. It would be really tough, but it just seems like once you've got a name more than, I would say, three times, you have, like, who cares? You have to look into it. All of them should have been looked into. I don't care if they were named once. Yeah, that's so true. On November 21st, 2002, Trinisha Colomb or Danae, as she was called by friends and family, was the next woman to fall victim to Derek. Danae was going through a rough patch following the recent death of her mother, who had passed away in April from cancer. Five months later, Danae attempted suicide by taking pills. Early on in November, she stopped showing up to work. Instead, she spent hours at her mother's grave. This is where Derek found her. Her car was found after being parked near the graveyard. Inside were her keys and wallet. Unfortunately, there is no evidence of a struggle. Her father worried that Danae had finally committed suicide, and on the 24th, the search for her body, or for her, was called off. That same day, a hunter found her in the outskirts of town. She was punched in her face, slamming her head into a tree. He tore off her pants and underwear and raped her, leaving semen behind before pulling her body 30 feet into the brush. Oh, poor girl. Mm-hmm. On December 24, 2002, Mary Ann Fowler, a 65-year-old, went out to get Subway at 5.30 p.m. Uh, Moments after leaving, one of the employees, Paula, noticed her car was still in the parking lot. She stepped out and noticed Mary's food, everything from Mary's purse, scattered on the ground, and acrylic nails that had been torn off, like from her fingers on the ground as well. Rightfully so, Paula called 911. Mary was never found. So, as with this case, um, Derek was never officially linked. But again, I'm leaving it in because years later, Derek's cell phone records prove that he was within a few miles of her right around the abduction time. Does he ever, like, admit to any of them? No, he doesn't talk about it at all. He doesn't even admit to the ones that he gets found out yes all right so now we're getting to the 3rd of march 2003 carrie lynn yoder was taken from her bungalow two blocks from the south gates of lsu her boyfriend lee called her in the evening of the third receiving no answer he called again in the morning and then went to her house after receiving no answer again all the lights were on and the and the car was still there but uh still he didn't get anything So he left, and the next day he called again and went over again, and after still receiving no answer from her, he pushed open a window and went inside. After not finding her, he called 911. 
Not much evidence was found other than a male key, like the ring holder. You know the mail, like that you can put mail in, it has the keys under it. So one oh, of those, yeah. Yeah. yeah, was sitting like crooked at the front door. And that was about it. So after processing the scene, police gave Carrie's purse to the family. And it was actually them that noticed a spot on it that looked like blood. After testing it, it was determined that it was blood and it was later matched to Derek. Uh On March 13th, 10 days after her disappearance, Carrie was found under the same Whiskey Bay Bridge. Carrie had been thrown off the bridge that Pam had been found under just eight months prior. Carrie's autopsy revealed that she had been raped and was beaten so hard that the ribs on one side were broken from two through ten. And she was thrown off the bridge? Yeah. Like, must not have been a highly trafficked area. Because how would you do that? No, it sounds like it's, you know, a backwoods kind of area. Um, so these broken ribs, one of them had punctured her lung and liver. She had contusions to her forehead and bruising to her eyes, neck, and wrists. Death was due to asphyxiation from manual strangulation. On May 2003, another detective, Danny Mixon, that we had talked about before that had brought the case originally with David McDavid, had seemingly had enough. And he still thoroughly believed that Derek Todley was the killer and was sick of being repeatedly shrugged off. So he turned his frustration to the investigation, putting together yet another list, and this one included Derek's incarceration records, a list of every vehicle he owned, tracking the timelines during the murders of these women. As he worked, he reached Randy's case and realized the semen in the trash can liner was never processed. He believed it was due to the cost of DNA testing at the time. After getting all this information together, he put a six-page motion for a subpoena it's called um, Deuces Tecum that explained the probable cause. And this is a Latin term for, quote, you shall bring with you, end quote. That's what the subpoena is. Mm-hmm. It was signed the same day it was submitted by the judge. On May 5th, the subpoena was given to Derek Todd Lee, and two swabs, one from each side of his cheek, were taken and sent to the lab for testing. Oh, he's so fucked. Mm-hmm. And Derek, uh, or the detective, um, says that when he went and got the swabs that he like dug into his cheeks. He was like, oh, he, he was like, I am absolutely going to ensure we are getting all of the DNA. Right. Like we are getting every single ounce. I'm yeah. So he, he made sure. Um, later when discussing the case, Detective McDavid reports as quote, Early on, we had clues he was involved in the Warner's murder, the Mabrewer's disappearance, but we didn't have any training on DNA. It was a tough learning curve. Years later, we were able to present enough evidence for a judge to issue the DNA warrant, end quote. And immediately after the swabs were collected, Derek made plans to flee. He sent his wife and his kids to Detroit to stay with her family. And while he originally flew to Michigan, he returned back to Baton Rouge after a couple days. It sounds like he went to try and get a job, couldn't give anything, get anything, came back to Baton Rouge, and then flew to Atlanta. On May- mm-hmm. Well, again, we talked about this before, but DNA takes a while to come back. It's not like it's days. It still just seems like a lot of movement for a short period of time. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Also, this is post- 
9-11. So he's, like, going through security at airports. And, yeah, like, but they didn't have anything officially on him. I and know, they can't hold him for nothing. Like, the trail he's creating is yeah, pretty substantial. Yeah. So, again, the subpoena was given to Derek on May 5th. And on May 25th, test results came back and were matched to the several of the murder cases in which the DNA had been collected. Within days of the results and mass media uh, reporting on the the new identification. So, I mean, as soon as they knew who it was, they're like, here, media. Like, yeah. This is who our killer is. It's Derek Todley, and he was splashed everywhere on the news. Um, Derek was caught and extradited back to Baton Rouge. Oh, that would be so scary to watch the news and, like, this is the serial killer. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it it sounded like it took a while because they knew, like, the family was in Michigan, so they went to Michigan and talked to Jackie, and Jackie didn't really know, and then they went to Cassandra next, and I believe Derek called Cassandra while they were there, and they were able to determine that it came from, I think, a hotel in Atlanta, and that's how they kind of narrowed it down to the city, and then they had to get you know, Atlanta, Georgia involved, yeah. and they finally, and they thought it was going to be a big thing, and basically they just walked up to him and were like, you're under arrest. No fight, no nothing. Just, okay. He knew it was coming. Oh, the writing was on the wall as soon as they, I mean, as soon as they took the swabs, then you know. You should have just, like, like, given your hands up right then. Yeah. So he was extensively interrogated and didn't give up any information. In August 2004, he was tried in a trial that only lasted for three days for the murder of Geraldine DeSoto. After lengthy opening remarks, the prosecution opened with the testimony of survivor Diane Alexander, which, amen to her for this. Like yeah. She came in and was like, nope, this is what he did. This is how he did it. And it definitely was very damning. The jury took only an hour and 45 minutes to return a verdict. With a vote of 11 to 1, Derek Todd Lee was guilty of second-degree murder, sentencing a... Mm-hmm. Sentencing occurred on August 16th, and the judge remanded him to the custody of Louisiana Department of Corrections for the term of his natural life without the benefit of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence. Then, two months later, he went back to the trial for the first-degree murder of Charlotte Pace and the attempted murder of Diane Alexander. Prosecution was allowed to bring in evidence from his previous homicides and his convictions throughout his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, they laid out everything. And as a result, this guilty verdict resulted in the death penalty. He was never tried for Connie Warner and Randy McBrewer. You know, I feel like it's pretty rare for a judge to allow, like, previous, like, legal matters into a trial. But if there was ever one that it made sense, this is, like, yeah, I hear a, a lot. great example. Yeah, there is a lot where the defense works it so that you can't put it in because it can sway the right. jury but because it would sway the jury like i i'll tell you if i heard like a record like that and yeah. then that this guy was let's say there's no dna evidence i would my brain would be going well yeah and i, I think mean, who is this guy? yeah i think it also helped not the defense execution the fact that he was convicted of the first crime and so he's already serving time for it so right. that's pretty hard to keep on the I mean, jury at this point it is it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, on January 21st. No, no. Joe. Oh, no. 
On January 21, 2016, Derek Lee was taken to the hospital with complications from heart disease. There were no specific specifics or diagnosis given, and his autopsy report was not made public. It simply states that while at the hospital, Derek died due to complications from known heart disease and therefore died of natural causes after being on death row at Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola for 12 years. The prosecutor from his cases said of his death, quote, I was not disappointed to hear that he died of natural causes. That assured me he would never get out. I think justice was done for the victims, end quote. Yeah. And I thought that was the perfect sentiment. Yeah, that definitely is a great way to sum it up. Like, it, you almost wish that he would have died a little more horrifically, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe they, he, you know, had a heart attack and they did CPR and like really tortured him while they were doing that. <laughs> like his final, final moment, right? Breaking all of his ribs and it doesn't work. Um, oh darn. Oh bummer! Yeah, I know. In the background, we're a little cheer. We're cheering. We're like, it'd be hard to take care of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I said at the end of this case that I would mention one of Derek's children. So, just an offshoot. On November of 2018, Derek Todd Jr., who was 19 at the time, was arrested. He confessed to authorities that he had accidentally shot his friend, Valentina Brooks, who was 16 at the time, and the res- result of the shooting was fatal. On November 13th, Derek told investigators that he brought a gun over to his friend's house for a rap video that they wanted to shoot. Derek told Valentina that the gun was unloaded and the two took videos and photos with the gun for their rap song. Derek said that he was messing around with the gun when it went off, hitting Valentia in the chest. Derek went to his stepfather and reported what happened. Stepfather was the one who called 911, and responders noted that Valentia was face down with the gun under him. Initially, Derek told them that he had committed suicide before admitting that he had accidentally fired the gun. Derek was charged with one count of negligent homicide. Um, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, so what kind of stuff on this highway involved in the decision to contact the police? Like, at least he developed, he wasn't Louisiana shooting his friends. Yeah. Well, my hope it was a one off and it was really an accident. Definitely. Yeah, or a serial killer's son. I was like, oh, that's. It kept popping up every time I was looking this up, and I'm like, this is a kid. We're not talking about a kid. And I was like, oh, it's Junior. Yeah. And I I mean, whatever happens, I hope, hopefully he, you know, reforms enough or has better sense and things like this don't keep happening. Yeah. I mean, that goes to show that, like, your, like, generations can be affected by you, too, because my, like, gut and instinct when I hear that is just like, oh, like, yeah. it's just sort of sickening but Mm -hmm. you know like stupid kid really stupid kid yeah how do you not like you brought the gun how do you not know it's loaded and you're 19 you're an adult at this point like it's really dumb it's quite stupid but at the same time you're a 19 year old boy who's also an idiot but your dad's history 
It's going to follow you forever. Yeah. It doesn't help that he originally said that it was suicide and then gun was found under him. Yeah, he was like trying to hide it. That's the only thing that caught me off as the most suspicious of this. Like, where you're like, well. Yeah. But. Again, it's that like teenage, like. I know. All right. Well, that is the end of that. And to all those listening, be careful out there. It's a dangerous world we live in. I knew that was going to be loud. It's fine. I'll edit it out. Yeah. There you go. Are you going to sit and eat? Yeah. Avery would not stop. Okay. That means she loves you. You got to be real quiet, though. Okay? Thank you. It actually means she thinks you're super cool.